Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Evan. How are you this morning? In the room online, yell really loud. Maybe I'll hear you. No, still not. But I love that you're with us this morning, everybody who's here and online. Uh, that first reading that you heard was a nice complimentary New Testament passage of our hope and our future, but it starts back in the Old Testament. We've been going through the book of Joshua, so we're going to look at Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 as our scripture reading. I'd encourage you to find it this morning. I'm a little hot up here. Garrett, can I go down just a little bit, maybe? Um, thank you. Um, Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 will be our scripture this morning. Follow along however you're reading scripture these days, electronically or in paper form. Here we go. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah Harloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised in the way, on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we've been going through Joshua, we're looking at what the relevance is for us in times of uncertainty and times where there's change on the horizon and new things and that sort of thing. In reflecting on this, um, I was reminded of a story uh, when I was in ninth grade. It was about the time of finals, so about this time of year. And in a world history class, we were going to do some flashcards together, get paired up and go over flashcards to get ready for the final. And uh, the kids sitting in front of me, we got paired, you know, person in front of you, next person. So you weren't necessarily paired with a friend. In fact, that was definitely not the case in, in our situation. I didn't really care for him. He didn't really care for me. It was one of those situations. And he was also the loudest kid in the class, and obnoxiously so, when he did it on purpose. Um, and he had been kind of bragging for a long time um, that he had made it through uh, confirmation in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, he bragged a lot with kind of four-letter words, too, so you wondered about the veracity of the faith at that point, but in his case. But as we're doing these flashcards, we get to what should be a familiar flashcard in that case, and uh, I'll use different language than he did, 
we get to the word where it says John the Baptist, and he just yells as loud as he can, who the heck is John the Baptist? Which seemed to me to be a double failure, because I felt that he should have known that from confirmation. And secondly, we went over it in class, apparently, too, if it was on the flashcard, so I felt that he should have known it from that context. It's one of those moments where you see that something failed in the process. Now, I think it was not the teaching, and I don't think it was the confirmation, actually. I think it was uh, what he wanted to take in. But there is a, a distinct uh, sense in Joshua chapter 5 that you have an older generation that's actually failed a younger generation as you read that. An older generation that in many ways they haven't done what they should have done to set the groundwork for what's supposed to happen. You have a generation that has not only not passed on the faith but they didn't even create a viable way to practice the faith is what you end up actually seeing in here. But here's the good news. Yet they didn't do that and yet God gives them a second chance. Do we have anybody in the house who is thankful for second chances? It, amens to that. Thank you God for second chances. Forgive me, we have a cold going through our house so I'll probably drink a little more today but we'll make it. I'm excited even if at times it, my voice won't cooperate. We, as Sherry said this morning, are disciples who make disciples here. That's our goal. We want to do that in a high challenge, high invitation environment. That's why we got little cards, for instance, to invite people and other ways that we invite people. That's not the only method, obviously. That's just one tool in our belt. But when we look at the text and we consider the mission, disciples who make disciples, we challenge each other to be more like Christ and we want to invite others into that. This morning, Let's specifically consider how can we challenge people who are younger than we are, whatever age you are, those people who are younger than you, how can we challenge them and equip them to be better disciples of Jesus Christ? And secondly, how can we invite more people along on the journey? That's what we're considering through the whole book of Joshua, and specifically I think that comes into focus with those disciples that are younger than you and I are, whatever age you are this morning. And as we've said through this series, and we'll continue to say, it takes courageous conviction to live out the mission. It's no different in this particular passage. It takes courageous conviction to live out the mission. So let's focus in on this. It used in the text an awful lot of times the word circumcision. What it has in mind here is male circumcision. Uh, the Bible never prescribes any other kind. Of course, we don't the New Testament says, okay, that's fine to dispense with that. Paul has specific words about that that are fairly graphic at times. But this is related to the covenant that God made with uh, Abraham. And then from that point on, they're supposed to circumcise. That's one of the signs for at least the men in uh, the males within Israel as one of the markers that they're a set-apart people in a covenant with God. The idea is that they're a nation of priests calling others home to God. And that as that nation of priests, they need to be faithful to the covenant and faithful to the terms of the covenant. And they need to have signs that mark them along the way as the people who are faithful to fulfill that mission. That's what this was. Well, it turns out if you go back to verse 2, they get a direct line from God. It says, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. And then if you go on to verse 5, it says, all the people that came out of Egypt had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness, so for those 40 years of their wandering, all those kids, those boys, in that case, during the journey had not been. So that's the problem that they're facing. The Exodus generation 
the adults during the Exodus, they'd been circumcised, but it ended with them. And the Exodus generation, if you think about what they had seen in Egypt, they had witnessed this epic rescue on the part of God. They had, in some cases, experienced the effects of the plague, and they had certainly watched all ten plagues that God worked out. They had sat in their homes after putting the, door, the blood on the doorposts on Passover and not only experienced the meal, but heard the wails in Egypt of the Egyptians who lost their firstborn. They had experienced all of this in Egypt. They had experienced the water from the rock, the crossing of the Red Sea, manna, which is mentioned right here. They had been given manna for all of these 40 years. From heaven, God had been giving them food. And yet the message of God's faithfulness stopped with them. It's very interesting to see that. They faithlessly participated in God's mission. Yeah, they were still kind of on board, but there wasn't a lot behind it. There was not a heart behind it as they did it. If we keep going on, if you go to verse 7, it said, So they raised up their sons, and he raised up their sons in their place. That's what happened because they were faithlessly following through. They kept disobeying God. He, faith, uh, he raised up their sons in their place. These were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. All the fighting men at this point have died. Those are the ones that were circumcised. And these people, they had not circumcised their, the next generation of fighting men, which was necessary as it turns out. Why did it stop in the wilderness? Why did this practice stop with the Exodus generation who saw all of this? I wish the text told us more. It doesn't really tell us exactly why. We could come up with a couple of thoughts. One is it was inconvenient or it was dangerous, perhaps. Perhaps they were on the move so much that they thought, well, this is just something that we just can't put up with. Uh, the circumcision would have happened at eight days old for, these, uh, for their infants, but perhaps because they were always worried about attack, they didn't do it. There could be all kinds of reasons why they stopped doing it that were, they thought were pragmatic or practical reasons. We don't know. John Calvin, even, even in the 1500s, said if that's the reason, though, that's a pretty weak excuse to not follow what God had called them to do. What we can actually see, and you can see a little bit of their heart here, and you can see more of their heart as you look back at how they wandered through the wilderness is a great word I ran into this week, which is spiritual indifference. That seems to be what's going on with them. I, I'm going to uh, credit Donald Campbell, the biblical scholar, for that. Spiritual indifference seems to be what's actually guiding them. You can see that God provided so much for them. We already recounted some of that. God provided leadership in the form of Moses. God provided escape in the Exodus. Their response to all of that, complaining. Their response, building a golden calf, worshiping an idol. Their response, rejecting Moses' leadership, which, as God says, is really rejecting my leadership. Their response, ritual unfaithfulness. Even though they've built their, following God's guidelines, they've built their lives around the tabernacle. Still, ritual unfaithfulness. And you can see that this affects the next generation too in this way uh, if you look back at Exodus 12 48 it's worth reading it's going to come up on the screen where they have this instruction a foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised then he may take part like one born in the land 
no uncircumcised male may eat it. So it didn't even matter if it was a foreigner. It had to be anybody. had to be circumcised in order to experience the Passover, the celebration of God's faithfulness, of the Exodus, and leading them out of the land. And yet they hadn't done that. They didn't even make it possible for their kids to celebrate God's rescue as they walk towards the promised land. Spiritual indifference can look many different ways. It can look like ignoring what's there. If spiritual indifference can hit us as if we're sort of the Pharisee, who is somebody looking at other people and saying, you know what, I'm saved, too bad for you. Spiritual indifference can look like eating at the spiritual buffet, of which we all have a lot of around, where we have books and we have podcasts, and we have scripture, and we have sermons, and we have devotionals, and we have Bible studies, but spiritual indifference takes all of it in, but never ever shares it, or the fruit of that. That's spiritual indifference. So how do we make sure that the faith does not end with you or me, and continues to get passed on to future generations? Now let's be clear, if you or I chose not to pass on the faith, God would still pass on the faith. We would just be faithless in doing that. Now, how do we make sure that we're part of that plan? How do we make sure that we're part of the mission of passing on the good news of Jesus Christ to future generations, to making sure that they're equipped? You can see that God gave them a second chance. They're given a second chance. Verse 9 is an interesting one, and scholars kind of hum and haw about the exact meaning of it. But it's a second chance verse. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means circle or round, uh, as if playing on the idea of being rolled away. Scholars have some, some basic and some inventive ways of understanding that. But basically, they're given a second chance. Look, it's a new day. Whatever was holding you back, you don't forget the past. But now it's a new day to walk forward with God. He's doing a new thing among you and the truth of the matter is there's always time to turn it around and return to faithfulness god is always giving us those opportunities and those second chances really for israel i don't don't even count it's more than the second chance it's well down the line of how many chances they've been given god gives us gifts in order to to do his work and his mission God gives us second chances when we miss the marks, even when he's given us those gifts. And to put our faith in him again, we need to demonstrate that we trust him. That's actually what the people are being asked to do here. They're being asked to show some trust. Yes, God is at work, and yes, I'm on board with that. Now we heard from Colossians this morning, uh, for us that trust begins in Jesus Christ. For us, that trust begins, like Paul says in Colossians 3.13, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. That's where it has to start for us. But we do have to actually demonstrate from that point on that we trust. We do have to demonstrate as disciples who make disciples that we not only believe that God is active and alive and God is able, but that God will work through us to make more disciples, will work through us to invite others into that mission. So we can see three things from the text that are a show of trust that I think we can glean from. 
three things happen here. One is the Passover is celebrated again. One is that they eat food from the land. And then the third thing is they have to show a lot of vulnerability in the presence of their enemies. So let's start at the Passover for looking at that. They celebrate the Passover again. You can see that at the end of our passage that we read or our section that we read. And the danger that they face if they don't do this, if they don't follow God's instructions and circumcise and then celebrate the Passover, is that they will enter the promised land with a generation who has no way to worship or no background for the Lord who took them to the land. They, they won't have any way to, to celebrate it. They won't know what it means. So God will give them the land, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know who to thank, nothing. I remember when I was doing uh, youth ministry at the, the first church I served, we would, um, we'd have parents who, as they're considering their kids going to college and leaving the house, uh, we'd sometimes have conversations about what, what that would mean, and there's this desire in the heart of some of these parents that I want my kid to, to follow Jesus, of course, and I want them to go to church regularly when they go off to college. And so we, we, when we got the opportunity, we'd have the conversation because some of these families were coming to church once, twice a month at best. And so then you have to ask the follow-up question, okay, if that's the goal that you want when your kid leaves the house, what are they doing now? What are they seeing now? If they're coming once to twice, do you think when they go out of the house that they will go the same amount, more or less? Right? And we would have those conversations. I'll tell you, even as somebody who grew up in the church, who loves going to corporate worship, and even as a kid really enjoyed it, in fact, when we had to stop for the pandemic early on, oh man, that killed me. I hated it. I love coming here with you people. This is great. But even back then, as a kid, I loved it. Even in college, I loved it. But even when I was away from home in college, there were a lot of mornings when Covered Up Covenant really called, right? Or Bedside Baptist or whatever you want to call it. I slept through church too. What are we setting them up for? What, what kind of future did this older generation build for their kids? Well, they had to start over in what they built for their kids. And if we're disciples who make disciples, what should we be attentive to if we want others to follow suit, if we want others to follow Jesus closely? I mean, at all, at all levels, we need to have good instruction is what we need to have is a simple answer. I know that I've heard from uh, both college level and seminary professors even who are getting kids that come who grew up in the church um, who have been going to church their whole lives and, and seminary professors will still say, man, the biblical IQ is way lower than it ever used to be. They don't know the basics like they used to. We've got to be people who are into, the fancy word is catechetical instruction, teaching them the faith. We've got to do that at all levels within the church well. We've got to have good rites of passage within the, the body of Christ. We have some of those dedications celebrating the sacraments together, but we've got to do a really good job of assimilating and bringing in other people into those rites and rituals, into those things that we do that mark our faith. Um, an example, a simple example of, of something I was just talking about this morning with um, some of our greeters and prayer teams, like we have something, here's a simple idea, apprenticeship kind of ideas. We have like stuff like this, where your greeter, your usher was wearing one of these this morning. This one says, Pastor Smudge Evan because I smudged it apparently, but uh, I've been trying to wear these too. But if you're doing that, for instance, you could just grab a person on your way in and say, hey, here's another one. Will you do this with me? 
We've got to be better about inviting others to do the ministry with us at every age group. Those who are younger than us, grab them and bring them in. Those who are our peers, grab them and bring in. The question is, what are we modeling to one another? What are we modeling to younger generations particularly? Are we, if we aren't serving, how do we expect our kids to serve? If we're retiring out of service at early ages, what are we expecting them to do? We need to model what we want them to do. So, that's the quest, challenge question to us. How can you actively disciple or include someone younger than you in the life of the church? Consider that to yourself. How can you actively disciple or include someone younger than you in the life of this church? What changes do you need to make? What, what alterations do you need to make? What simple invitations do you need to make to include someone else in the life of the church? Second thing that we see that was a, a place where they needed to demonstrate faithfulness and show that they trusted God was in the food. This is a really interesting, simple thing that happens here. If you look at verse 11 and 12, it says, The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Uh, Old Testament scholar Robert Hubbard calls this ancient fast food, which is exactly what it is. That's unleavened bread, it bakes quickly, and the roasted grains, something you can just cook real fast. It's about as, as fast food as you can get in the ancient world. Um, God said, the manna's done, you're in the land, now you're going to eat the produce of the land. I brought you here enjoy this live into it i know that we uh growing up uh, i'm of swedish heritage i know we have some others in the house who are of and maybe your family came from the old country whatever the old country is and you've eaten food from the old country that was carried on generation by generation we eat swedish potato sausage around christmas but we don't eat every day um, we used to think it was a delicacy now i've realized it's poor farmer food that we've been eating as if it's a delicacy all these years they got to eat a little better as they went on, and new food is what they got to eat. It wasn't just what they were eating out in the wilderness. Something God was doing something new with them, even in the food that they were eating. Does, doesn't God do that with our faith in Jesus Christ as well? That God will do a new thing with us sometimes. We move to new phases of that faith in Jesus Christ, both as individuals and as his people. Sometimes it's easy for us to get focused on the methods over the mission right we get stuck on the methods that we've been using and we forget about the mission in the process but the mission is more important you can eat all kinds of different food that god could call us to but he's called us to one mission to enter into the promised land and take the promised land and do that in faithfulness and draw others to him that's what they're doing the man is done now the trust in god is demonstrated as they eat the produce of the land we're here and we're going to trust that god's going to keep us in the land God's already won the victory. We're going to keep eating with more bounty as we're in this land. And so it's an interesting question as you consider uh, how sometimes we can live in the past when God's calling us to the future. Here's a challenge question for us as well. What is a tradition or sentiment that keeps you living in the past and prevents you from moving forward to God's next thing? That's not a change in theology question. Don't need to change that. But what is some way that we're living in the past sometimes even if it's what God did, but we're not actually living into what God is 
doing because of it. I mean, consider that for your own life. If we're going to be people who are disciples who make disciples and, and disciple those younger than us, we can't simply live in the past, though we have to recognize it. In fact, one of the important things to recognize, we didn't focus on this last week. We kind of skipped over Joshua chapter 4, but in Joshua chapter 4, they make a monument that's to point for the future generations. This is what God did. Put these 12 stones up. When future generations ask, that's what God did. Okay, point to that. The Passover, when your kids ask, what's this for? Point to that. But they don't do the Passover every day. They live into what God's doing. They eat the produce of the land. You can see this all through you know, church history. This kind of thing has been done where you're living one way, but, but you need to actually modify, whether it's the, you know, doing worship in Latin when everybody else is speaking a different language, or, um, or even a non-church example that I, I thought of this week when I was a student at North Park University years and years ago. Uh, there was a petition early on in my time there to save the pool. Uh, the swimming pool. It leaked like a sieve. It was built in the 1920s. I was there in 99 is when they sent the, the, the survey around. The oldest, oldest swimming pool in Chicago. Save the pool. We got to save the pool. I'd never been into it in my life. I was like, I'm not signing a, a petition for this. And it turns out that they got rid of the pool, made a much better athletic area to use and a much better meeting space simply because they weren't living in the past. But people wanted to hold on to this sentimental thing because it was sentimental. It was something that we knew from the past but it prevented them from paving their way into the future. We do that sometimes. They have monuments to the past. That's good. You need those. You don't give up on the legacy, but you don't live in the legacy either. Third thing they, where they had to demonstrate trust is they had to show vulnerability in the presence of their enemies. This was a big deal. I think this is one of the biggest deals in the whole passage of Scripture here. They're only at Gilgal... They're only two to four miles away from Jericho where they're about to go into battle, where the people are melting in fear, where the people know that they're there probably as a hostile takeover in just a little bit. So they're not far away. And if you consider they didn't circumcise their boys all in those 40 years in the wilderness, if you were going to pick the absolute worst and most vulnerable time to circumcise them now as adults, this is the worst time to do it. When you're in the face of your enemy and it's going to take time to recover and you're going to basically take out a commission for a while all of your fighting men. But what does God call them to do? Do it now. And you can see that was verse 2, if you remember. At that time, the Lord said, so it was a direction from the Lord, circumcise the Israelites. But if you go back a verse, you can see what else they should have known. Back in verse 1. It says, now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, what did their hearts do? Melted in fear. And they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Rahab said the same thing, remember? The way was already prepared. The victory was already at hand. God had already given them what they needed. They just needed to do the work part of it and show that they trusted that God had already won the victory. Following God's instructions at a time of physical, a physical vulnerability was an act of courageous conviction. It was the opposite of spiritual indifference. The people had, had put for 40 years their faith in ritual, and in survival in the wilderness. 
And now they're being asked to turn it around and put their trust in God and God's mission again. They have to demonstrate that in the most vulnerable way in this case. Now, we can be fairly risk-averse people in our day and age. We can be fairly risk-averse in the established church particularly. But we become risk-averse when we put our faith in anything over the mission. It actually wasn't risky to God to do this. It only seemed risky to the people. It wasn't even risky to them if God's already won the victory, right? But we sometimes put our faith in other things instead of the mission. We, we put our faith in fear. And we have fear of offending other people instead of following the mission. Fear of failure instead of following the mission. We have fear, uh, that, or not fear, we have uh, desire for comfort over any vulnerability or any potential risk. Sometimes get complacent. Sometimes we just have low expectations of what God is actually going to do. God says, I'm going to do this, and we say, yeah, but I think you're actually going to do this. No, God's doing something new. God asks them to step up, put their faith in him in some pretty remarkable ways. It's only risky if they believe God isn't able at that point. So the last question, challenge question for us, I'd love to hear your answers later on this. What new thing is God doing here? What new thing is God doing among us, and how can we show that we trust God in whatever things God is doing here among us? How can we tangibly show that we trust God? God. You see, we need to show courageous conviction if we're his disciples. We need to invite those who are younger than us into the life of the church in a deeper way. Teach them what it means. Model for them so that we make a way for them. We need to invite those who are outside of the mission and of the kingdom into the kingdom as God's people. Some of that takes courageous conviction. But here, let me give you a little good news at the end. There's a remarkable byproduct when you do that, when you share your faith, when you invite others in when you mentor or when you bring in somebody who's younger than you into the fold in a deeper way. The more you share of God's good news, the stronger your faith gets. The more encouraged you are to keep doing it. The more the idea of courageous conviction becomes easier to do. The more you recognize God is able. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who is able. You are a God who calls us and gives us second chances. You are a God who calls us to invite others in because you invited us first. Let us not neglect our responsibility to those that are younger than us, to those that aren't as far along the path as us in discipleship. Lord, let us be dutiful. Let us be responsible. Let us be courageous in our invitations to bring others in. Whether it's as simple as bringing others into the life of the church here and serving or to take others out with us to serve outside of the church, whether it's to invite somebody to join us in that service or in worship or in a Bible study or whatever it might be, Lord, help us be a people who invite, who disciple as you have called us in to follow you. Lord, we want to be faithful and found faithful and courageous in the conviction that we find in you because it's only in you that we find the truth. And we want that to be seen in our lives and in our actions. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.